The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So, um, before we dive into this, I, I did want to let you guys know that Pastor John was just again wanting me to relay just so much gratitude and thanks. Um, he is going home loaded up. Some of the generosity that has poured out of this church for him the last two weeks has been amazing. He came here with one little carry-on suitcase. He's flying back with two suitcases that he's checked, plus the little carry-on suitcases, full of all sorts of gifts for him and the people at the church. And, and uh, not to mention that, between what we had raised here and some private donations that came in later, um, somewhere around $30,000 to further the ministry of Oasis of Hope in Uganda. So we're really excited about that. Thank you guys for that. Yeah. And uh, looking forward to getting him back out here uh, soon. I, I, I was telling some people like when we go and we come back, I'm always energized coming out of an Africa trip, but um, it, it doesn't always relay back to the congregation in the same way. That's hard to transfer, but I feel like bringing him here this time did that in a really powerful way. So it was a blessing to have him here. So uh, be praying for him. If, if you didn't see the news today, unfortunately, there was a, a plane crash in Ethiopia today. And I think it's 157 or something like that. People died on the plane crash today. Um, so let's just pray that John gets there safely. Pray for the families of, of those victims as well. Um, and let's just pray for the day that we can be reunited with our brother. Amen. So for now, we are in Luke. Uh, we've been working through the book of Luke for a little while now. This is our 57th sermon in the book of Luke, 57 sermons. Um, we will finish somewhere around 65, it looks like. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I think 65 will be the, the number when we finish this series on the book of Luke. And as we've been going through, I mean, 57 sermons, um, you're bound to hit some things maybe from multiple angles, same topics. Um, this one today in particular, we've hit a few times now in the book of Luke. And, and I don't think it's like, you know, the Bible was written kind of with a purpose, right? You know that. Amen, church? 930 service. Is that what this is? Okay, come on. Amen, church? Okay, I'm get, you're going to get out early. Just hang with me. So uh, um, it was written with a, with a purpose. It's not like Luke wrote about something and then later forgot that he wrote about it and then wrote about it again. And then the book went to the printing presses and people were like, Luke, you wrote about it twice. And he's like, well, it's already at the print. Nothing I can do. Like, that's not how it went down. And so sometimes things come up and are, are, are put before us multiple times because we need to be reminded multiple times about some of these things. And this one right here in particular, I would, I would imagine. This idea of, um, well, let's just consider for a second. I, I want to give you, just don't forget the background of what we're talking about here. So Jesus is born. He's raised. He calls some disciples. He begins ministry. He's, he's doing everything from casting out demons and healing the sick and walking on water and raising the dead. Like there's amazing things that take place. And, and then he makes his way into Jerusalem and the opposition's building against him. And so now he's with his disciples. And just last week, we looked at the story of the Last Supper. And so at this particular point in this text, they're all still in that room, that upper room where the Last Supper took place. Um, they're still there. They're still sitting around that table. They're still sitting in the presence of Jesus. And, and these are his 12, right? Now, now Judas is going to, I don't want to ruin the end of the book here for you, but Judas, it's going to go bad for him, right? So, so he's going to, we're going to push him off to the side, but these other 11 guys, like 
it's kind of a big deal that they're the ones that he has chosen to be the torchbearers for this brand new movement. They are going to be, if you will, the fathers of the church. It's a big deal. It's a massive responsibility. They're going to carry this new message that's going to change the course of humanity and change the world. These guys, like they're kind of knuckleheads. And, and right now, in the room, having just had the first communion service with Jesus where he talks about how he's going to die for their sins, his body's going to be broken for their behalf, his blood's going to be poured out on their behalf. While they're still in the room, the disciples enter into what has to be the dumbest argument in the history of arguments anywhere else in the world. It says in verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And so it, when it says that a dispute arose among them, it actually means almost more like a contest. It, it's as if these guys are now bartering back and forth, arguing with one another, trying to prove the case of which one of them is the greatest. While they're in the room with Jesus. Does that just seem like a dumb conversation to have to anyone else? It's like a couple of us sitting in a room with Mike Tyson at the peak of his existence and we're arguing about who could beat each other up while Mike Tyson sits right there. It's like that's just a dumb argument to have. We should just turn our attention to him. It would be, we saw the lion video last week, right? It'd be like me and Pastor Aaron in the car, lion walking right past us and he and I are talking about who's faster or who's stronger. It's just a dumb argument to have when you're in the presence of someone who is so infinitely above what you could possibly be at your best. I mean, remember, he created the universe. He's walked on water. He's risen the dead. And they're sitting there going, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. They're literally having that argument right in front of Jesus. It's, it's crazy, this dispute that's actually taking place here. But it's an argument that people have all the time, right? We all want to be great, right? You're like, no, Jeff, I came to church on, on spring forward Sunday. I showed up. I'm here. We're, you may not know this, but we're like upper level Christianity at this point here, Jeff. And, uh, I don't want to be great. Yeah, you do. You should, right? I mean, do you want to be a good husband? Should you want to be a good father? Should you want to be a great leader in the church? Should you want to be a great husband? Should you want to be a great wife? Should you, uh, I mean, those are things that we should want to be great at, right? But the difference, as we're going to see, is greatness in those areas actually benefits someone else, not the great person. Like a great father... The one who benefits from you being a great father is not you, it's your children. The one who benefits from you being a great wife is not you, but your husband. So, so the benefit of that greatness ends up being someone else, not you yourself. And therein lies a major, major difference between what we're talking about here. And so here's this argument takes place. I mean, Jesus has just given them the first communion service and they instantly are fighting about who's greatest. And Jesus never rebukes them. He never rebukes their desire for greatness. He just redirects it. It's almost like anything else. I think that desire for greatness is a God-given desire, but like anything else, it can be perverted by sin and used for different ways. And Jesus is not rebuking the desire to be great. If anything, he's encouraging. He's calling us to be great, but he's calling us to be great 
with regards to how the kingdom of heaven views greatness, not with how the world views greatness. And those things are very, very different. And you say, well, what does that actually mean? Well, Jesus explains in verse 25, he says this, and he said to them, the Kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he brings up two examples of greatness. It's not this, it's this, right? Greatness in the world there. And the first he brings up is the king of the Gentiles. So the king of the Gentiles, for example, in this particular day and age, would be someone like Herod Antipas. Herod is uh, the puppet king. He's the king who rules over that area there. He's, he's a Gentile, means he's not Jewish, um, but he's ruling over that particular area there, but under the, the thumb of Rome, you might say. So he's in charge, but he still answers to Caesar. So what's that particular king like? The Gentile king, Herod. What is it about him and his rule that we might see so that we could learn that we should be something different? Well, let's just consider what he did. Herod was consumed with himself. He was absolutely consumed with himself, especially through the avenue of constantly seeking self-pleasure, self-gratification. To Herod, Everyone else around him existed to serve his needs and to bring him pleasure, including his own brother's wife. So Herod, we know historically, actually takes his brother's wife for himself. It ends up in what John the Baptist calls him out for, an incestuous relationship, which eventually will get John the Baptist killed. So here's this guy, king, and to him, everyone is his servant. Everyone's under him. Everyone exists to bring him pleasure. And if he wants whatever he wants from them, he can take it because it doesn't matter what they need or want. What matters is what he wants. So he takes his brother's wife. Then he throws this huge drunken party with all of his buddies and brings her daughter in to dance naked in front of all of them while they're drinking. Do you remember the rest of the story? He's so consumed and so enthralled by what he's seeing and so consumed by this, this um, incestuous, disgusting lust that he says to her, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now, what's his motive there? Is it just to bless the young lady? Of course not. He wants to keep it going. He's saying, you do this kind of stuff, I'll give you whatever you want. So what does she say? She talks with mom. She comes back. She says, we want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Mom was a little embarrassed because John the Baptist has been calling them out for a long time for this particular relationship. And they're like, we want John the Baptist dead. And so what does Herod do? Done. Deal. John the Baptist is currency for Herod to feed his ongoing lusts. Like that's really what takes place there. Even later, he's going to try Jesus. Jesus is going to be brought before him. And what does he do? Entertain me. Do your tricks that I've heard about Jesus. Dance for me, you might say. Everything around him exists for the purpose of bringing him pleasure. Everyone and everything is just a vehicle for him to get what he wants. That's what the king of the Gentiles is like. And then it uses this phrase, benefactors. So there's the king of the Gentiles. And then it says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. There's not really a, a, a term necessarily for what benefactors is in our day and age. Um, but think Caesar in this particular case. Uh, this would be a benefactor, not just over an area, but, but a, a ruler, a king whose fame and acclaim is spread far and wide, who you might even say people all over the place worship this particular guy. 
So in this day and age, it would be Caesar. So what was Caesar like then? Well, Caesar claimed to be God. Caesar claimed to be uh, uh, deistic. He, he demanded worship as well as loyalty, not just obedience, but actual honor and worship on the same level as God. So Jesus points to these two guys and he says, have you seen how people lead here? Hey, disciples, you're all excited about being kings and all about being great. Have you seen the way people rule and lead here today, right now? Those guys, where everyone around them exists to bless them. This is who Jesus points to. Now, some of us would say, well, this apparently doesn't apply to me because I don't walk in that area of authority or power. And that's probably true for most of us. I don't, I don't think very many of us in this room, if any at all, uh, have any sort of role where we carry super significant power, you might say, on a regular basis. Maybe some, maybe a business owner, even a pastor or elder has a certain amount, I guess you might say. Um, but even that's just depending on who wants to grant that to them. But most of us don't have that sort of authority. But here's the deal. Number one, all of us have someone that we're leading. All of us have someone that we have influence over. Be it your employees, be it your children, be it your spouse, whatever the case may be. So all of us have areas of influence, which is a form of power over someone else. But even if not, even if you want to talk about actual, genuine, like power, here's the reality though. Even if we don't have positions of power, we all experience moments of power. All of us have moments of power. You know, when do I have a moment of power? Here's an example at a restaurant. When, when you're in a restaurant and you sit down at your table, who comes to your table? Your server. And they take what? Your order. And you go, oh, you're just being cute with names. Am I? Have you ever gotten upset because your food didn't get to you fast enough? Because they messed up the order that they gave you? Like, that's what we do, right? Oh, it's their job. Okay. But you're still sitting down. You are enacting your sovereign will. You're saying, bring me this. And don't you dare let my iced tea glass go down. And, and, and what do we do? We will leave restaurants because they didn't serve us the way that we wanted to. We will leave restaurants because they don't bring the order fast enough. I mean, have you seen people in coffee shops? Like coffee shops are the worst because everybody's coffee order. I'm like one of the few people I think left that just drinks black coffee. And if I'm in line behind you at a coffee shop or kiosk and you just get black coffee, you are my hero. I just want you to know that because it doesn't seem like anyone else orders that. Um, as our staff grows, every so often we'll have like a staff meeting and we're like, hey guys, I'm going to bring coffee in for everybody. What do you want? And it's never just black coffee, mocha. It's, I want a, a half whip, half soy, coconut, uh, this much cream, this much sugar, that much froth, whatever the case may be. And it's always this kind of funky stuff that have you ever seen people in orders when they mess those up? Like I would mess all of those up if I worked in a coffee shop, every single one of them. And people, I've seen people even on social media get mad because Starbucks or someplace wrote the wrong name on the cup when they gave it. You got my name wrong. That's sovereignty. That's enacting a level of personal sovereignty over someone in a specific situation. When you go into a restaurant, whether it's their job or not, and you demand performance based on your will and your want, you are enacting a certain level of authority, control. That's sovereign will taking place in that place. And by the way, 
air travel, speaking of Pastor John, who's making his way back, air travel's the worst. I don't know if you guys have flown lately. Human beings all become disgusting when they fly. Just terrible people all together. And I am no exemption from that, let me tell you. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell on myself and on uh, Aaron Beamish a little bit because he's not here right now. So don't tell him I told this. But... Uh, we were flying back from Uganda, and when I'm doing those really long flights, I always like to try to get the, uh, the emergency exit. It's not like first class or business class, but that emergency exit coveted bulkhead seat back in coach. You know what I'm talking about? It's still coach, but you get this, right? And so I love that. And sometimes you have to pay a little bit of extra for that spot, but on a like 12, 13 hour flight, worth it, okay? So we're coming back from Uganda. And Aaron and I have those two seats on one side, right in front of the emergency exit. I have the, whatever, the window seat. Aaron's at the aisle. And these Russian guys decide they want to hang out. There's some Russian dudes on the plane who apparently had snuck a bottle of whiskey onto the flight. And so they were pouring whiskey into these little cups and they wanted to stand up and move around. And if you've ever had that bulkhead seat, whenever someone wants to stand up, that's where they all end up. They either go to the very, very back where the the servers or whatever are, or they stand right there in that bulkhead area. And so these guys are standing there talking. And so me and Aaron, what are we doing? We're like making sure our legs are stretched out just as far as they possibly can because this is our turf and we paid for it. And don't you dare bring your Russian-ness over here, like taking territory, like communist, what do you want? Like say, no, literally, like we're literally stretching our feet out. Even if we didn't feel like we needed to stretch our feet out right there, because that's our turf and we are sovereign rulers over the emergency exit bulkhead. And it was so bad. I don't know why I tell you this. That was enough. I could have just stopped right there, but it was so bad that as they were sitting there talking and hanging out, their little circle that they're sitting talking in was getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And so they're backing up and getting closer and closer and closer. And at one point, this is, I'm a horrible human. So at one point with my foot behind and he's getting closer and closer, I purposefully went dink and tapped him just so he would know my foot was there and know that I had claimed said territory. And he would look back and not entrench any further. Your pastor. <laughs> Right? We all have moments of power where we seek to exert our sovereignty on a specific situation or a specific person. We do that. And church is no better off. I mean, people everywhere view the church the same exact way that they do a restaurant. I want to go to a place that serves me the best. Or they'll leave churches because, well, I didn't like the service and I didn't like this and this was different and this was different. Not that there aren't sometimes very valid reasons to leave a church or to choose a church. But it seems like more often than not, a lot of the reasons that people leave churches, not just this one, but just historically, is because our sovereignty got crushed somewhere. Instead of looking at the church as a place that we go to serve others, we look at the church as a community service organization that's supposed to serve me. And when the church doesn't meet my needs or my expectations or do exactly what I want, I'll go find somewhere else that does. And we'll treat it exactly like a restaurant. Eh, I didn't like their service. Or this was too long. Or the wait was too long. Or whatever the case may be. I once in college left church mad over a parking space. Gathering together to worship our Savior who gave his life for me. But don't mess with me in the parking lot. That's my parking space. So we all... We all have moments of power, even if we don't have positions of power. 
And Jesus is saying, see those guys? Hmm, not like that. Verse 26, look what he says. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Now, there's something really interesting in the original uh, Greek language here in verse 26 with that first sentence where it says, but not so with you. In the original writing, there's no verb. There's no actual verb. So um, a way of translating that would not be to say, don't be like that or you are not like that. It just says, you not that. And when there's no verb there, it's actually intended that we would read this and translate this in two different ways. One of them is an imperative. One of them is an indicative. One of them is a statement of reality and the other is a statement of command. And so in other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you're not like that. So don't be like that. What is he talking about here? He's talking to his disciples and he's saying, guys, You're part of a completely different kingdom. You are not like them. You may act like them at times, but you're not like them. There is something different about you. Your calling is different. Your identity is different. You are different. Therefore, be different. Be who you are, is what he's telling them to say. And then he goes into his classic example where he says, no, great among you is like a child. This is something he's already done in Luke chapter nine, where he, the disciples are having the same sort of argument. And then he takes a child and he says, listen, the greatest in my kingdom will be like this child. So for us, we who have our moments of sovereignty or areas of sovereignty or influence or whatever the case may be, how does that apply to us? Number one, church, If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, as these disciples are, then number one, you got to know, you are different. Whether we're acting it all the time or not, your identity is markedly different than everyone else's identity on the entire face of the earth. You're different. Even in that setting, as he's separating the kings of the Gentiles from the Jewish people in that particular analogy, for us, followers of Jesus are markedly different, different even in nature now, in the very being of our souls. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead. This is something that we see over and over and over again in the New Testament, in all these letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, over and over and over. The first part of the book talks about who we are. It talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we have been changed and set free and we've we've become now adopted into the family of God. And then before it ever gets into any sort of commands or anything like that, it, it, it declares that so clearly. And then it says, now be that person. That's what it's calling us to be, to live out the reality of our identity. Uh, The Christian life is not so much a bunch of rules to follow. The, The Christian life is a genuine reality that is to be embraced. We are different. We live for a different kingdom, not this one. We follow a different king, not them. We have a different spirit within us, not them. And so what is that spirit? What is it? Well, remember what Paul says. And we've, seems like we hit this text like at least once a month. Philippians chapter two. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have the same mind that Jesus had. And what does it say about him? Hey, consider others better than yourselves. 
This is Jesus who was in a position of absolute ultimate power, the preeminent power in the history of all universes ever and of all time, did not view that position and that power and that authority as worth being grasped in compared to serving those who needed saving. And so he willingly laid that position aside and goes from sovereign on a throne to basically a homeless itinerant rabbi that traveled around just trying to save those who might listen. One who actually right now is a night before his own death for the sake of the world. That's the spirit that we have in us. It's the spirit that saved us. And it's the spirit that we've now been filled with. The very Holy Spirit, the very spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now resides in us. Church, listen, you're different than them. We're different than them. Oh, our human nature kicks in and oftentimes we act just like them, but it doesn't change the reality. We are different than them. And so we should be different than them. Does that make sense? We should go, okay. Knowing what I know, knowing who I am, knowing who God's calling me to be, and more than anything, knowing what Jesus Christ did for me, I will no longer nudge Russians in the back of the leg on an airplane. Right? The problem is remembering it in that moment. That's not so easy, is it? Because our territory has been encroached on. Alerts are up. Invasion, invasion. I probably shouldn't keep talking about invasion and Russians in the same sentence. That could go really bad for me probably, right? But, but this is just the reality. This is what he's called us to be. And then the example he does, like I said, he says, instead of becoming the greatest, you become the youngest. If you're going to be the leader, you become a servant. In the book of Matthew, it actually says literally, the greatest among you will become a slave to everyone. Slave. Not a popular term in our day and age. But that's the model for us. That we are slaves, not to oppressive wickedness, but that we would make ourselves as slaves to other because of the ongoing and incredible goodness of the one who gave his life for us. Amen? So we're different. We're different. We're different than that. Not so with you. Instead, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves And then Jesus expands on the kingdom differences. Look at verse 27. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So he's using the example of a feast. I guess the closest we would probably have to that would be some sort of wedding feast or wedding banquet. And you know how it works. You have all the different tables that are all set up. And then at the end, you have the the head table with the wedding party, right? And the position of honor, even at the wedding table, is right in the middle. Very interesting. Very similar to like the painting of the Last Supper, but we won't go there. So there's the table of honor. And if you're sitting really in any of those other tables and someone comes up and says, hey, who's this about? Like, who's the focus? Who's the great one here? Not like the best, but the honored person. Who's the esteem, uh, esteem exalted person here? Everybody would point to that table and say them. Who's the least? Probably Jeff stuck back at the kids' table in the back corner right there. Um, and he's saying, no, Jesus is saying, I- I'm taking a role even further back than that. I'm the servant who almost doesn't even seem to have any place there other than to serve the needs of the other people that are there. Now, church, where is Jesus right now in this story? What's taking place in this story right now as he says this? The book of John talks about the Last Supper and it says, 
that after that meal that Jesus takes his robe off, which is a symbol of identity, like your robe, it would almost be like a uniform to some degree. Robes were kind of important back in that day. He takes that robe off and he takes on the wardrobe of a servant. And he goes to the feet of each person at that table and starts washing their feet. And then he says, guys, I have given you an example that as I have done for you, you are to go and do for others and happy you will be when you do these things. So here's Jesus saying, who's the more honored person at a dinner party? And everybody would go, obviously the table of honor right there. And he's like, but here I am doing what? Not just serving, washing feet, embracing humility, embracing the role that no one there would want. And he says, this is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. They're watching it take place right there, which makes the absurdity of arguing about who's greatest just ridiculous. They're watching it there. And then Jesus points something out. That rather than being the person who lives for self, rather than being the person like these other kings who says, okay, everybody around me exists to serve me, to make me happy, to get out of my way, to bring me pleasure. Instead of that, he, goes, he, he points something out that shows us what the true test of discipleship actually looks, at, uh, looks like. In verse 28, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he points them to that future kingdom. There's going to be exaltation there. You have been given a place in that kingdom, a place of preeminence in that kingdom. But that kingdom took place. The, the true test of their discipleship was not in walking with Jesus through his glorifying moments. It was actually in their ability withstand and to stand with him during trials. That's something important to think about. A true test of discipleship is not participation with Jesus in the glories, but it's faithfulness to Jesus during the difficulties. And that goes against everything that we would want. That rubs against our human nature in so many, so many ways. But the reality is, if you only are following Jesus because of the benefit that you're hoping for on the end, then you will eventually walk away from Jesus for the cost of following him that will eventually be enacted on you. You won't stay. And this is what he's telling them. He's pointing them to something completely different. And he's honoring the fact that they were faithful in trials rather than look how glorious you might be. You know, when we were in Africa, um, we did the pastor's conference while we were there. We taught, um, there, were, there were 26 churches that were represented there. There's a whole room full of pastors and everyone. And, and we were talking um, about the gospel in general. What, what is the gospel? What isn't the gospel? What are perversions of the gospel? What are all these different things? And, and inevitably, especially in Africa, if you're going down that road, you're going to end up talking about prosperity theology, which we've talked about a lot here. As you know, prosperity theology says that God desires that you be wealthy, healthy, healthy, comfortable, um, just doing really, really well in all those areas. And if you're not in one of those areas, then you're struggling in faith and you just need enough faith to claim and live that abundant life that Jesus promises. And that's what they believe. 
And so in Uganda, it's everywhere. And, and there's this one church in Imbarara in the town where we actually serve and minister. There's a massive, massive church there. That's a prosperity theology church. It's huge. And thousands of people go to this church all the time. Paul tells us in Timothy that that's to be understood that one day many people were going to look for teachers. It says who teach things that tickle their ears. In other words, we're going to go to places that say the things we want to hear. And so when you're in a country that struggles with poverty, that struggles with difficulty, with illnesses, with all those kind of things, to go to a church where somebody says God wants you to be happy and God wants you to be rich, it would make sense that people are going to be drawn to some of that. And so they are by the thousands, week after week. And so I'm asking this group of pastors in the room, I'm like, that church over there? Because we'd driven by it the day before. I'm like, you guys know that church? You know the ministry? You know the pastor? All, all this kind of stuff. I don't know the pastor's name or anything, but you know who I'm talking about? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, so guys, think about it. Like, how many people out of the thousands that go there every single week and are told over and over and over how wealthy they're going to be? Like, how many people do you know in the 10, 12, however many years that it's been there that that actually happened to? Because like I'm walking around in Barara, I'm not seeing a lot of BMWs. I'm not seeing a lot of fancy cars. And thousands of people are going there every week and being told that if they just have faith, they'll be rich. So I'm just curious, has anyone actually seen it happen ever? And all the pastors there are like, nope, nope, nope. And then one guy actually raises his hand. And he goes, well, there's actually one. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, he's the pastor of that church. I'm like, oh, Yeah. He's, he's found, he's found the money, but that's because he's living off the backs of other people there. And so we started talking about this issue of, of comfort and of wealth and of like, here's the things that we in our flesh want right now versus discipleship. And you guys know coming up in, uh, uh, probably like two weeks now, I think, or March 29th, I believe is when it is. Um, Gary Brashears, he's the head of the theology department at Western Seminary. He's going to be down here and he's going to be doing a workshop on spiritual warfare. Um, it is not to be missed. I mean, fascinating stuff. It's free. Sign up. Probably was in announcements anyway, but anyway. Um, so I took his spiritual warfare class. And so in this class, we had a paper we had to do towards the end of the class on some aspect of spiritual warfare or demonic attack or all these things in the scriptures. And, and there were some different suggestions that you could pick. And I just picked one of them at random and started working on a paper. But as the class was going on, I started noticing something that was coming up over and over and over. I ended up changing my paper completely and doing it on this. What I started noticing is over and over in the scriptures when I would bring up or come to texts that were about spiritual warfare. So passages where Satan's attacking, where Satan's challenging faith, where he's just spiritual warfare stuff happening in the Bible. It was almost always tied to comfort or privilege. Almost always to uh, aspirations of greatness and comfort and wealth or the lack thereof. So a few examples. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're subservient to God. The serpent comes to tempt them and says, hey, if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. Begins to tell them, you can, you can be your own God. You don't have to do what he says anymore. You can have everything the way that you want it. And they take and everything's broken. Fast forward to the story in Genesis. Sorry, the story of the Exodus. Um, the people of Israel are rescued by this great and merciful God. They're delivered from Pharaoh. They cross the Red Sea. It's an amazing thing. But once they're in the wilderness and they start to get hungry and they get tired of the manna that they find every morning, what do they start doing? They start grumbling and they start going, you know what? Did God really lead us all the way out here in the wilderness just 
to be hungry? And they even say specifically, we would have been better off if we had stayed back there. Translation, we had better food, better comfort. We weren't in the wilderness. We would have been better there. And it leads to their demise. What's the story of Job? You guys know the story of Job, right? 930 service, story of Job. God points out Job to Satan and says what? Have you seen my servant Job? Look how he follows me. And what's Satan's response? Of course he follows you. He's got it made. But if he had to suffer or go through difficulty, he'll walk away. And God says, okay. And you see this cosmic battle taking place. Will the suffering of Job cause him to doubt God and walk away? We see it with Jesus. In Matthew 4, when he's in the wilderness, hungry, 40 days fasting, Satan comes to him and says what? You know, you don't have to be hungry. You could eat right now, Jesus. You don't have to obey your father's will. You don't have to be out here doing this. You could snap your fingers and eat. These rocks would turn to bread. It's going to happen the next day. Even this night, I should say, Jesus is going to make his way into the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you guys ever see The Passion? Everybody's probably seen it right now, right? Passion of Christ. The best scene by far, the most, I think the most helpful and important scene in the entire movie is the opening scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the garden, he knows what's coming. He knows the pain he's about to experience. He knows the rejection he's about to experience. And Satan, which by the way, probably the number one creepiest Satan character in the history of cinema, walking around Jesus in that garden, whispering to him, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And Jesus says, Lord, if there's any other way, then he says, but not my will. It's not about what I want. It's about what you want. Stands up, and then that scene, boom, crushes the serpent's head. Powerful scene. And then maybe the most famous, or one of the most famous, while we're on Uganda, let's talk about lions for a second. One of the most famous passages regarding spiritual warfare is in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, Peter's writing to this church, and this church is going through real hardship, real difficulty, and the persecution they're dealing with is about to get even worse. And so he's writing to this church to encourage them to be faithful servants of God. And he says, church, listen, be on, be on guard because your enemy, the devil, He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Everyone knows that text. Everyone's heard that. But do you know what he says right then? After that, he says, resist him and stand firm in your faith, knowing that the persecution that you're enduring right, enduring right now is shared by Christians all over the world. Translation is this. Hey, church, listen, when things get hard, you're going to be tempted to leave. Anybody would stay in and follow Jesus if we were sovereign and always got what we wanted. But when things get hard, you're going to be tempted to leave. Satan's going to be whispering in your ear saying, does God really love you? Is this Christianity thing really working out? Don't you think if this was real, it would go a little different? And you're going to be tempted to walk away. And he says, stand firm in your faith by being faithful to Jesus while walking through suffering. And so here's these disciples having no real concept for what's about to happen. And Jesus is redirecting their greatness to say, greatness in the kingdom is being a servant. And ultimate greatness in the kingdom will be determined to a large part by how you are faithful to stand with me through difficulty, not how you get to stand back and participate in my glory. 
So be faithful. Live with a different agenda. He even redirects their focus. Don't look at your glory now. Look eventually. Look down the road. There's a kingdom that's coming that's not like this. And he's telling them over and over, disciples, guys, you're different. You have an eternally saved soul that will rule and reign with me in eternity. So that's the marker that we point towards. We don't live for comfort now. And so church, then let me just encourage you in this. Sometimes the best, uh, um, uh, how do I say this? The, the best indicative for us as to where we are in terms of our ongoing discipleship and getting more and more like Jesus is not how we are when things go our way. It's how we react when they don't. And in that moment, we can, we can kind of uh, reveal who the sovereign we're serving is in that moment, us or him. Because when we're serving him, we're bowed low like him. When we're serving us, we tend to puff our chests out, demand our rights, and argue about what we do or do not want. So may the Lord convict us of this. And again, here's the thing. Right now, we can all talk about this and nod our heads in agreement and go, yeah, that's right. That's what we're supposed to be. This is the easy part. It's hard later when you're in the restaurant for two hours and your food hasn't showed up yet or when the guys do step in your territory that you paid dearly for on the airplane or whatever the case may be, when our sovereignty is violated, how will we react? May God give us a heart like Jesus. Amen, church? Will you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father, will you help us war against our own self-adulation? God, by your spirit, I pray you would show us areas where we seek to be served. And instead, Lord, by your grace and by your spirit, give us that attitude of humble servitude. Trusting you to exalt us in due time, but not seeking self-adulation. And Father, I pray that you would help us to do this, not so we can be such super Christians, but so that we can model who you are. For Lord, the reality is you came to serve us first when you deserve all glory, you deserve all obedience, you deserve all acclaim, and yet you would set that aside to bow and serve the likes of us. We are eternally grateful. Now God, help us to live in that same manner, to consider others around us better than ourselves, to serve, to be quick to bend a knee, to be childlike instead of looking for prestige and honor. And Lord, as we do it, may the world see that we are different. And may you give us opportunities to point to you as the reason why. I pray your blessing on everyone here, Lord. May we leave this place. May these words take root in our heart. May the enemy take none of them away. And God, may you give us the ability to look more and more like you every day. In Jesus' holy name we pray. All God's people said... Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.